it's an Old Testament concept. It's the people that it's it's the person whom the Jewish people were looking forward to. He was going to be their savior. He was going to be their provision. He was going to be their king. And so the whole Old Testament is pointing to his coming. And so to really understand the Messiah in the New Testament, we have to understand the Messiah in the Old Testament as well. And in fact, John actually is structuring his gospel in this way because a majority of of the audience that he's writing to, many of the people that he's writing to are Jewish people. They knew their Old Testaments well. They relied on their Old Testament scriptures. They loved them because they thought that in them was life. And we see that even at the end of John 5. Jesus says, you think that in these scriptures you have life. So they loved their scriptures. And John is at pains to prove that Jesus Christ, the man who grew up in Nazareth, real person, real history, that that man is the Messiah that was predicted throughout the Old Testament. And he structures his gospel that way. It's amazing. What are the first words in the Bible? In the beginning. In the beginning. What are the first words of the gospel of John? In the beginning. So we already see that God is going to, through John, in writing the Gospel of John, show that Jesus is somehow linked with the God who created everything, the creator, right? Nothing came into being except that which came into being through Jesus Christ. And so Genesis 1 links with John 1. But guess what else happens in Old Testament history? You have a God who renames people. You have God who renames Abram to Abraham and a God who renames Jacob to Israel. And one of the first things that we see in the gospel of John in John 1:42 is Jesus renaming Simon to Peter. Now the only one who renames people is God. And so there's already a hint that Jesus is God in, in just that. But there's more. We're going through Genesis even further in Genesis 28. Do you remember Jacob's ladder? The, the ladder at Bethel that Jacob saw going into heaven with angels going up and down between heaven and earth. And in John chapter one, we also see that same thing. Jesus in John 1:51 tells one of his new disciples that he will see angels ascending and descending on the son of man. Jesus compares himself to that ladder. So again, you see another connection between Old Testament and New Testament. How about Jacob's well? How about Jacob's well that you see in the Old Testament in Genesis 48? Well, that comes up again in John chapter 4, where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. Do you see how John is sort of walking through the Old Testament and the history of the world and the history of Israel to show that Jesus, this man, this person is starting to match up and connect with everything that the Old Testament is talking about? And after Genesis, we get to Exodus. And very quickly, in Exodus 15 through 17, there's three chapters in Exodus, Exodus 15, 16, 17, that I'm going to talk about right here. And they have a pattern that is repeated in three chapters of the Gospel of John as well. Okay, very easy pattern. Exodus 15, there's something about God providing water. Okay, Moses tosses a tree into bitter waters and they become sweet for the people to drink. Now, Genesis or sorry, Exodus chapter 16, there's God's provision of bread. That's the manna in the wilderness. And then again in Exodus chapter 17, God miraculously provides water again. And so you have provision of water, provision of bread, provision of water. And guess what? We see that same pattern in the gospel of John. In John chapter 4, 
Jesus offers living water to the woman at the well. In John chapter 6, Jesus claims to be the bread of life. And in John chapter 7, we see the phrase streams of living water come up again. And so all this is just goes to say that if you want to understand John, it's helpful, really, really helpful to understand your Old Testament because John's relying on that. He's trying to show that Jesus, the man who grew up in Nazareth, matches up with everything that the Old Testament is saying about the Messiah. He's trying to prove that you must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. That's what John is doing here. And so we're going to study John chapter 6. That was the part about Jesus saying he was the bread of life, which, as I mentioned, corresponds to Exodus 16. Exodus chapter 16, where God provides manna in the wilderness. And we need a quick overview of what God is teaching in that chapter so we can understand, because it's a prerequisite for what John is going to teach in John chapter 6, okay? So let's look at Exodus 16 together. And the thing we need to realize about Exodus 16 is ultimately, we just heard an amazing sermon about God's name this morning. And that's what God is all about revealing in the book of Exodus. He wants to reveal his name to his people. And I want you to look at Exodus 16, verse 12. Look at why God wants to give bread to the people in Exodus 12. He says, at twilight, you shall eat meat. And in the morning, you shall be filled with bread so that you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God. The reason he provides this meal is so that they will know that he is Yahweh. That's very important. We need that information if we're going to understand John 6. So you see that it's about revealing his name and the way that he's going to do that. What he's going to show about himself is that he is a God who provides He is a God who provides in a profound and miraculous way for his people, even though they don't deserve it. He provides in spite of his people's sin and rebellion and depravity. And that's the lesson that we learn from Exodus 16. Because what happened before that? Well, God had just brought the Israelites across the Red Sea out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery to serve a true and living God. And he had just given them sweet water to drink when they complained that there was no water in the wilderness. He provided them water. And they had just sung an amazing song in Exodus 15 about how great Yahweh is and how he delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians and how God is a warrior who fights for his people. All this great deliverance God had accomplished. And what was the people? response. Well, chapter 16 of Exodus verse 2, and the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And and they even put themselves against Yahweh. They say in verse 3, would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into this wilderness to put this whole assembly to death with hunger. What a thankful response to such a great God, right? Wow. This really shows the depravity of these people. And God actually wants to make that super clear. He originally, in verse 4, he said he was going to rain bread from heaven. Look at this, verse 4. Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my law. So this is going to be a test. 
when a great God accomplishes a great deliverance and gives you this amazing and miraculous provision, are you willing to keep, are you able to keep his law? That's this test that's going to happen here. Do you understand who your God is? Are you going to respond rightly? And the lesson of Exodus 16 is no, the people can't do it. They can't do it. Moses provides simple instructions. Gather a day's worth of manna every day. Don't save it for next time. Trust God that he's going to provide the next day's manna for the next day. But the people did not trust God as you scan through Exodus 16. They didn't trust him. They gathered food and they tried to save it overnight because they're like, I don't know if God's going to provide again, even though he promised. But that manna rotted because it was just as God said, I'm going to provide for you. Don't save it over. And then God told them and instructed them. It was very simple instructions. Only collect a day's portion, but except on the sixth day, on the sixth day, you've got to get two days portion because the seventh day is the Sabbath, right? And so he promises it's not going to rot from the sixth day to the seventh day because you are supposed to keep my Sabbath. It shows God's glory when the people work for six days and rest on the seventh because that's what God did. That's, and he was pointing forward to a great rest that he would accomplish. And so this was very important to God that his people keep these commands. And he was testing them to see if they would. And look what happens. They failed this test. They failed this test. They, they collected, they didn't collect enough on the sixth day. And on the seventh day, they went out to gather more food and there wasn't any there. Simple instruction. This is disobedience, by the way. This isn't just like, oh, shoot, no bread today. This is disobedience to the living God who has told you how he will provide and how you can accept that provision. And so Yahweh tested these people in the wilderness and they failed that test. Verse 28, Yahweh said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my law? And by the way, they were also supposed to remember these lessons, and they're supposed to remember this manna. They ate this manna for 40 years. God continually and graciously provided. Notice the lesson here, that in spite of their blatant disobedience, God was gracious to them and continued to provide for them. So loving, so gracious. He continued to provide for depraved people, but he wanted them to remember this. Look at verse 33. Or verse 32, Moses said, this is what Yahweh has commanded. Let an omer full, that's a measurement of the manna, be kept throughout your generations. This is supposed to be remembered. That they may see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer full of manna in it and place it before Yahweh. Place it before him because you're supposed to remember that this says something about who he is to be kept throughout your generations. And so they did that, and they ate the manna for 40 years. Very interesting verse at the end here, verse 36. Now an omer is in tenth of an ephah. Now that's important because the omer, this measurement, was starting to go out of style, and they were starting to adopt a new measurement, and God wanted to make sure these people remembered what God did and how he provided, because remembering that is going to point towards something greater to be accomplished in the future, an even greater provision than this miraculous bread in the wilderness. And so the lesson of Exodus 16 is that God provides, and he provides in spite of the amazing, sinful depravity of all his people. 
who cannot keep his laws, who cannot come to him on their own. And yet God is gracious to them and provides for them. And so with that, we have more necessary background to come to John 6. So let's go back to John 6, and we're going to walk through, hopefully, this whole chapter. We may not read every verse, but we are going to try to capture the intent of all of it. Because it's a whole section that goes together. There's different things that happen here. But if you'll notice, just the first, ver- the first three words in chapter 6, he says, after these things. Now flip back to chapter 5. Look at the beginning of chapter 5. You see, after these things. And then flip forward to chapter 7. You're going to see the same thing. And after these things. John is using these words as markers to show you the segments of thought the little snapshots of Jesus's life that he wants to show to prove that he is the Messiah. And so chapter six is going to show how Jesus is the kind and gracious and satisfying provision of God. And so we're going to see four great realities throughout this chapter, four great realities. I'll give them to you at the start so you could write them down and keep track of where we're going. It's the great God the great depravity, the great provision, and the great divide. Great God, great depravity, great provision, great divide. And so first, let's see what John wants us to see in the great God. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 21. Now, John what he wants to do in this section is make it so obvious, so clear that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. he, He is God. He is the Yahweh, the same God who led and provided for his people throughout the Old Testament. He wants to show you that. He wants you to see that. And there's tons of details in these verses. We're going to look at as many as we can in this time. Uh, But first, The first section is is John saying, all right, get ready to learn something big. Get ready to learn something big here because we're going to see that people, crowds, are flocking to Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 6, after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of Galilee or Tiberias. Now a large crowd was following him. He was doing big things. Look, because they were seeing the signs that he was doing on those who were sick. So Jesus is doing signs. He's attracting a crowd. There's big things happening here. And then we see some other interesting information that Jesus, verse 3, went up on the mountain. That's not accidental. John wants you to realize that he was up on a mountain because that conveys theology. Throughout the Bible, mountains tend to be places where God speaks to his people. God spoke through Moses to his people Israel when Moses would go up on the mountain and bring down a message from God. And so we were expecting to hear a message from God. And then Jesus, second half of verse three, was sitting down with his disciples. What rabbis would do during this time is they would sit down to teach and it conveyed a concept of importance, of authority, that you should listen to what this person is going to say. He's claiming authority over you when he sits to teach. And he's claiming to speak from God when he is on a mountain. And then there's another important detail in verse 4. Now, the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was near. The Passover was extremely important to the Jews. Huge amount of nationalistic zeal here because this was like their main celebration. 
It was their big celebration. It's like how Americans have the 4th of July. The Jews had the Passover. It was a celebration of their deliverance from slavery, their deliverance from Egypt. And so we see, we're going we're gonna to see some theology from this. We're going to see some Passover theology as John wants us to understand that this is happening during an important feast. This is happening when the people are expecting too. They're expecting a Messiah. They know what this theology is pointing toward because there is going to be a greater deliverance than just coming out of the nation of Egypt. And so we know from all this that this is going to be a big deal that God wants us to learn. And there's more details that are important here. Therefore, verse 5, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where should we buy bread so that these people may eat? Now we might ask the question, why was he talking to Philip? Why Philip of all people? Well, there's two important reasons for this. One is that we learn earlier in John that Philip was from Bethsaida, which is where this miracle is going to take place. And so he was a local, so he would have known the information. He would have known where you could get bread. He he would have known about this area. But I think that possibly there's a more important reason than that, and that's in John 1, 45. John 1, 45, we see Philip, and he says something important. Philip had just found Christ, just found Jesus, and he was telling other people who he was. Look at what Philip says. Look at this. John 1.45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Do you see what he's saying here? We found the guy that, that our scriptures were talking about. We found him. He's here. This is an excited exclamation. And this is important because look at why Jesus asked Philip, verse 6 of John 6. Now he was saying this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Do you remember a test earlier? Do you remember how Yahweh was testing his people in Exodus 16? Who was the one testing? It was Yahweh. What does that say about Jesus here? It's just a hint. But he's basically saying, Philip, you claimed that you believed that I am the true Messiah, the one about whom the Old Testament was pointing towards. The test is, do you really believe that? Now, if he really believed that, what do you think his response would be when when Jesus said, hey, where can we get enough bread to do this? Uh, Do you remember a time when God provided lots of bread for tons of people in the past? If Jesus is the Messiah, no problem, right? Yeah, Lord, you can make enough bread for everyone. But what's his response? Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. He's basically like, yeah, I don't know. This is going to be impossible. 200 denarii, that's eight months wages. One person is going to have to work eight months. And if you take into consideration all of the Sabbaths and holy days that you can't work, this is going to be working for a year in order to provide enough money to buy bread for everyone to have a little bit. And so Philip is saying that's impossible. You just can't even do it. Like, good luck with that. Can't do it. And then there's another disciple who wants to offer some help. One of his disciples, Andrew, this is verse eight, Simon Peter's brother said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? So he's like, oh, there's maybe an option here, five barley loaves, two fish. But again, his conclusion is this is going to be useless for this many people. It doesn't matter. By the way, those five barley loaves, they're really, they they weren't 
big. They were small. The, when you study the word, it's more like they're like crackers. Or R.C. Sproul, I love this, he described them as Twinkies. So they're basically the, the size of Twinkies. And then those little fish, they're like little dried fish, uh, not any big deal, kind of like sardines that you would just use to put flavor into this bread, these little crackers. So this is really like no food at all. So of course it's not going to feed this many people. And so does it look like the disciples are succeeding in passing this test so far? Now, one clarifying statement, they are disciples. They do believe Jesus is the Messiah, but that's just a picture of even people who believe that Jesus is the Christ can still doubt to an amazing level. Don't forget that this is saying something about what you should believe about Jesus. And he's setting this all up to show that he is that providing Messiah because he does have a solution for this. He's going to show that he is God. And and we get another hint of that because look at this next detail. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. And this is really interesting. Why do you think these details are here? If I could give you another translation of verse 10, something that is equally accurate, but it would be a little bit awkward to read, which is why I think they didn't translate it this way. Jesus says in verse 10, make the people lie down. Make the people lie down. Now there was much grass in the place. Now can anyone think of anything in the Old Testament about making someone lie down in green grass? How about... Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Who's the shepherd there? Who is Jesus claiming to be here? Do you see that? Do you see that John is trying to point you to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament, even in details like this? The Gospel of Mark makes it even more clear because he adds it's green grass, not just grass, but green grass. And now the people or about, or sorry, the men sat down in number about 5,000. And you've probably heard this before, but that's just the men. If you consider the women and the children too, you probably have over 10,000 people here, maybe 20,000. This is all going to show the magnitude of the sign that Jesus is about to do. Barely any food, like no food at all, and like all the people. So how is he going to provide for this? There's no way that you can buy enough bread. You literally have some crackers and cheese, well, crackers and fish. And how are you going to feed all of these people. Now just look at this. Look at, and look at how nonchalantly John describes this. Verse 11, Jesus took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish as much as they wanted. Like, Do you realize what just happened here? Like everyone is getting as much food as they want from these five loaves and two fish. And when they were filled, verse 12, they were filled. They were full. Imagine your stomach after a Thanksgiving dinner. That's what these people were like. They enjoyed a massive meal from this miracle. And they were filled. And guess what? How, how, many, how many things did we start with? We started with five loaves, two little fish. Now look at this. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, verse 12, gather up the leftover pieces so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over from those who had eaten. So you're ending up with way more than you even started with. Do you understand what happened here? Jesus just created food. He just created 
a ton of food, enough for 10 to 20,000 people to eat a full meal and fill their stomachs and have leftovers for the future. And every disciple, there are 12 baskets, 12 disciples. That means that every disciple participated in gathering up these pieces and bringing them back. And that's an important little bit of information to tuck in your head for later. Every disciple was able to pick up leftovers. Therefore, now the question, big question is, what are, what are people going to think about this miracle? It's amazing. Well, it looks promising, doesn't it? Verse 14, therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had done, this is a sign. This is a miracle. This is something that points you to the truth. That this is a man like no other man. This, in fact, is God. He is the creator. He is the Messiah. This is a sign that points to that. And when they saw that sign that he had done, they were saying, this truly is the prophet who has come into the world. Now, they're talking about a prophet like Moses. If you've ever heard that phrase before, they're, they're referring to Deuteronomy 18:15, where God promised through Moses, Moses said, a prophet like me will come. And so they're expect- they, they, they realize, wow, this is, not, this is a little bit more than just a guy. He seems to be the prophet, but, but there's a problem because look at verse 15. Jesus, knowing that they were going to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. And so we see in their minds that they didn't equate prophet necessarily with Messiah, with the one who would save you from your sins, who would fulfill the, the greatest need of your soul. They saw him as a guy that, wow, we can't get rid of this guy because he just gave us a lot of food. And it looks like maybe if he could keep doing that and, and if he could maybe deliver us from the oppression of the Romans, we want this guy to be our king. And so they recognized who he was from a selfish perspective of what they could get from him, what he could do for them. You notice that? Why do you follow Jesus? Why do you want to be on his side? Why do you want him to be on your side? For these people, their reasons were simply selfish. They wanted political deliverance from their time here and now, and they wanted free food. Who doesn't want free food? They wanted some free food from Jesus. They thought this is a good setup. And so they sort of missed it. They, they didn't see who he really is. They missed the magnitude of this. They saw him as a good guy but not the great God. That's who he really is. But Jesus is about to demonstrate even more clearly to his disciples that he is not just a good guy, but the great God. And so that's the narrative that follows, verses 16 and following. Let's look at this. Now, this isn't done before the crowds. This is done before the disciples. It's more of a private revelation. And I want to remind you from Exodus 16 that God was doing that to reveal his name, right? So that you will know that, Yahweh, that I am Yahweh, your God. And that's going to be important for this next part here because John 6 is about the same thing. He wants to show them that Jesus is Yahweh, your God. Well, let's follow along this narrative. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into the boat, they began to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark And Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea was stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. And when they rode about 25 or 30 stadia, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat. And they were frightened. A couple quick observations. 
At what point did they, come, did they become frightened? Well, let's look at this here. They began to cross the sea. It had become dark. Were they afraid of the dark? Didn't, dark didn't seem to be a problem to them. And Jesus had not yet come to them. Well, obviously, they didn't really see that as a problem yet. They're like, we'll just go on without him. Maybe he'll meet us somewhere else. And the sea was stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Big storm happening. Are they afraid of this? Well, the other gospel accounts will tell us that, yeah, they are, in fact, afraid of this, but there's something more terrifying. When does John say that they became afraid? They saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. When they saw Jesus Now, do you remember a massive miracle back in Exodus that had happened about some way about getting across the sea in a miraculous way? God had split the Red Sea so that all his people could pass through on dry ground. Now, this is really amazing that Jesus doesn't even need dry ground. He just walks on the sea like it is dry ground. He doesn't even change anything. He can just walk however he wants, wherever he wants in his creation because he is Lord over all his creation. Listen to this amazing passage from Psalm 77, verses 16 through 20. It declares the glories that only God can do this. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows went here and there. This is storm language. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Verse 19, your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waters, but your footprints were not known. But you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So again, you see the one whose pathways are in the sea, the one who has full dominion over all storms and all natural occurrences is Yahweh. And it's obviously Jesus in this passage. Job 9.8 says that God is the one who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea. And now here's another really interesting verse in this context, Isaiah 51, a couple of verses, 14 through 15, uh, because we just saw Jesus perform an amazing miracle with bread. And then we see him walking on the sea in, in Isaiah 51, 14 through 15. I don't know if John specifically has this in mind, but it's uncanny, the resemblance. The one in chains will soon be set free and will not die in the pit, nor will his bread be lacking. For I am Yahweh, your God, who stirs up the sea. Remember the stirring in John 6. And its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. And so the disciples see Jesus walking on the sea. They realize that they have seen the great God. That's who he is displayed here. And that is why they are afraid. And look at what he says. Look at what Jesus says to them. It is I, verse 20 of John 6, do not be afraid. Now that phrase, it is I, he's identifying himself to them. In Greek, he literally says, I am. Plain in the text, I am, do not be afraid. So this is who Jesus is. Verse 21, 
So they were willing to receive him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Don't miss that little miracle or big miracle. They just teleported. Have you ever heard of anything like that happening before? They got into the boat and it was just there at the land. This is miracle after miracle. They are seeing over and over again. Do you see how clearly John is portraying that Jesus is the master of all creation and the God who controls everything that takes place? Walking on water is no big deal. Creating food out of nothing is not hard at all. And snapping to exactly where they need to be is easy for a God who commands all things. And so we see from this that Jesus is the great God. He is the great God. And what is the response to this going to be? Are are people going to start to realize who he really is here in this revealing of his identity, of his name, of who he is? What's the response? Well, we move to our second point, and that is the great depravity. The great depravity. Just like in Exodus 16, where the people witnessed amazing miracles, the plagues on Egypt, the Red Sea parting, bitter water made sweet, bread in the wilderness from heaven every day for 40 years, and they still grumbled and sinned and disobeyed their God. They didn't have ears to hear or eyes to see or hearts to understand God's truth, and we're going to see that that is the default state of every single human. That is all of us. That was the whole assembly of Israel, and that is the crowds that are following Jesus. They cannot understand because they haven't been given life in their hearts to know the truth. Let's look at verse 22. On the next day, now you got to notice something here. There's going to be some, some context and background that set you up for just how badly these people don't understand what's going on here. On the next day, verse 22, the crowd which stood on the other side of the sea Listen to all these details. They saw that there was no other small boat there except one and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Look at how many, look at how many details are going here. No other boat, just one. Jesus had not entered into the boat. Very clear. His disciples had gone away alone. Jesus had not gone into the boat. They'd gone away alone. Now other small boats came from Tiberias to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Are the crowds going to notice all of those interesting details? Because they didn't see Jesus walking on the water, but they know that he's not there. They know there was only one way he got, got, could have gotten out on that one little boat, and the disciples already took that one. There's no boat for him to take. You got to think, huh? That's kind of weird. And, I, and maybe the people didn't. They're just like, okay, no matter. We got to find this guy. And so they're seeking Jesus and they found him on the other side of the sea, verse 25. And look at what they said. What did they say to him? Rabbi, you are like no other human because you just showed up here and there's no way you could have gotten here. What did they say? Rabbi, when did you get here? So, th- so they are like, this is weird. What? How, how did you get here? But look at what Jesus perceiving, knowing what's in their hearts. Why, why were they seeking him? Why did they want to find him? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Now here's the question. Why 
if you at all are seeking Jesus, what is your motive? Why do you want him? Why do you want to find him? Why do you want him on your side? If you can learn from these people, they, they had all kinds of evidence piled up showing them how great this God is. And they just missed it. It went over their heads. They're just like, hey, when did you get here? We, we want some more food. <laughs> do you have some more bread? Don't just seek Jesus because you want spirit, because you want physical benefits, because of what he can do for you, because you think you can have security in your schooling or your parents or money or anything like that. You think that he can provide you maybe friends. You come to church because your friends are here. You have any kind of earthly benefits. Why do you seek Jesus? Don't seek Jesus for those reasons. You should seek him because you see the evidence in his word. You hear God's testimony about him that he is the living God who alone can save you from your sin that separates you from a holy God. This is an eternal need that needs to be met. Don't worry about physical things. In fact, that's what Jesus is going to say next. Verse 27, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the Father, God set his seal. See what's going on. Jesus knows that there is a spiritual and eternal problem here. And he's saying, don't look to satisfy that with temporal things. Don't work for bread which perishes. Don't look for any kind of satisfaction that's going to pass away. Look for that which endures to eternal life. Do you recognize your true need? Jesus is showing them that you don't even know what you really need. Do you know that you are destined for eternal punishment by God forever in hell if you do not repent of your sin and trust in Christ? Do you realize that your sin drives a wedge between you and God? Do you realize that your eternal soul is what needs remedying? That you have no way, this great depravity that is shown here, these people have no way of understanding who Jesus is. There is no way that you can make yourself understand. There is no good work that you can do. You need your heart made new by God. This is an eternal problem and you need an eternal solution. That's why Jesus says, don't work for food which perishes, but the food which endures to eternal life. That's what you need. Do you have that? Do you see that Jesus provides that? We're going to see more of that as we continue to walk through this passage. We're going to continue to see great depravity in these people. God had set his own seal on Jesus. He had said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Voice came out of heaven and said that at Jesus' baptism. Very clear. People heard that. What did the people respond to? Wow, you're right. We worship you. We repent of our sin. No. Verse 28. Therefore they said to him, what should we do? Do you notice that? They still want to solve their own problem. What should we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus' wise answer in verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And notice that he didn't say, this is what you have to do, or this is the work that you have to do. What did he say? This is the work of God. God is the one who causes anyone who will believe in Christ to believe in him. It's a work that God alone does, and it is still a work that you are commanded to do. Believe in him, and if you do, you can be sure that God caused that belief. It's the work of God. You can't do any works to get yourself there. Jesus said, 
It's this, that you believe in him whom he has sent. He's talking about himself. He's saying, God sent me. Believe in me. Trust in me for your eternal satisfaction. And and that's how you will be accepted before God. And then people say, oh, thank you so much. I'm glad that I know how I can have eternal life now. No. Look at how great this depravity is. Verse 30. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now, do you understand the ridiculousness of this? Did they not see that? Were they not just fed miraculously? Did they not just see that sign? Did they not just realize that there is no way that Jesus could have gotten across this sea unless he somehow miraculously transported like no mere man can do. They've seen all this evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. They saw him act in a shepherding and providential way as he gave them food to eat. And they said, okay, what sign are you going to do? What are you going to do so that we believe us, so that that we believe you? This is total depravity. This is the state of every sinner's heart if God has not revived him. And, And they said in verse 31, Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so they quote, they quote what happens in Exodus 16, and they're actually quoting from Psalm 78 where it says that he gave them bread from heaven. And it's ironic because Psalm 78, if you want to read it sometime, is all about the people's disobedience to God in spite of his provision. That's what 78 is about, Psalm 78. It's about how God miraculously provided for his people and led them, and they still disobeyed and disbelieved. And so it's ironic that the people quote this, and they say, Moses gave us food. Can you give us some bread from heaven? And Jesus is like, I mean, like, you just ate a ton of bread. But guess what? He also corrects their interpretation. Jesus said to them, it wasn't Moses. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 32, Moses has not given you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's talking about himself. He said, and they said to him, okay, wow, now we get it. Now we know that you are the one who came down from heaven and gives life to the world. No, they said, Lord, always give us this bread. They're still thinking about their stomachs. They're still like, yeah, that's, that's good. I, I want bread where I'm not going to hunger. I, I want bread that, I want this kind of bread similar to the Samaritan woman who, who says, I want that living water. They don't understand that it's a spiritual need. It's a spiritual need that your soul has. And Jesus said to them in verse 35, and we get here to the great provision, number three, the great provision. What should a response of a holy and just God be to a people who continually rebels and disobeys and only thinks of themselves and has no capacity for worship, no capacity for understanding. This is offensive to the living God. And yet look at Jesus' answer. He just reveals more of who he is, of his gracious and providential nature to sinners. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you, that you have seen me, and yet you don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. We saw great depravity. We saw the only solution to that is if God changes your heart. That's rife throughout the rest of this chapter. Jesus continually leans on the fact that God is sovereign, that people will believe in him because God gave to them to believe in his son so that they could become children of God. 
All the Father gives to me will come to me. No one who comes to me I will, I will ever cast out. The one who comes to me I will never cast out, Jesus says. And so you can trust that if you do believe in him, if you do come to him, you can have eternal security that God has chosen you and Jesus won't turn you away. This is great encouragement to believe in Christ. You can't be turned down. He will raise you up. I have come down from heaven, he says, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is that will. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me that all he has given to me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Emphasis on the last day. This is not about the here and now. This is about your eternal soul. Jesus Christ, if you believe in him, will raise you up. Because God wills to do that because of his loving and gracious and providential character. He wants to provide for you. He wants to give you the bread of life, the bread you really need. And we need to just summarize and bring this all together and summarize the last part of this chapter is we're, we're going to see the way that Jesus is the bread of life. This is a, 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 meta, a metaphor for spiritual things. He says, the bread which comes down from heaven is my flesh. Now he's talking about the fact that God, what was it saying in John 1, that the word became flesh. God became a man because that was the only way that it was possible for him to live in a righteous way, to transfer his own righteousness to the account of sinners who don't deserve. And he says that his blood is the true drink. He's going to later talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. People are offended by that because they think he's talking about cannibalism, but he's talking about spiritual realities. He's saying, you need my flesh and you need my blood. You need the incarnation of the son of God to live for you and to die for you. That's his blood being poured out. You need the efficacy of his blood to save you from eternal death because otherwise it's your blood that's required. But Jesus shed his own, that is him giving his own flesh and him giving his own blood, his death on the cross and his resurrection guarantees that he will be able to raise you up on the last day like he promises multiple times throughout the rest of this chapter. I will raise him up on the last day. This is a great and amazing provision and it comes to all those who, verse 35, 33, sorry, 33 through 38 says, he eats my flesh and drinks my blood. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. These are spiritual realities. Don't make it about physical things. This is true and full belief and trust and coming to Jesus Christ. Do you remember verse 35? I am the bread of life. What does that mean? What does eating and drinking look like? Well, he who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. That's what's required here. Now, what's the reaction? Quickly here, the great divide. The great divide. When Jesus reveals who the true provision is, and now we're going to go through verses 59 through 71. We're going to see that people go different ways. Let's just read these verses. These things he had said in the synagogue was he taught in Capernaum. Many of his disciples heard this and they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing that his disciples were grumbling at this, by the way, remember grumbling in Exodus 16, the people's depravity, that they couldn't understand. Same thing here, grumbling. And he said, does this cause you to stumble? What if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? You see this is a spiritual reality because he says in verse 63, the Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe 
and who it was who would betray him. You can't trick Jesus. He knows already whom are his. If he's calling you, you need to come. If God has changed your heart to believe in the bread of life, in the Son of God, the Messiah, then you need to come and be saved from your eternal death, which you deserve, into eternal life. And that requires the Father changing your heart. He was saying, for this reason I said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. These are both true. You must believe, and the Father must draw you. Both are true. And these are sort of tensions in Scripture, and maybe that are that are finite minds can't quite comprehend. I don't know how it works that man is responsible and God is still sovereign over salvation, but they are both clearly true from this passage. So believe in God and know that when you trust Christ, that has been given you from the Father. A few more details to notice. That it's the disciples who left. Look at verse 66. Very sad. As a result of this, many of his disciples went away and were not walking with him anymore. You realize that you can be very close to Jesus. You can be all in and say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a disciple of him. I, I want to follow him. I want to do what, what he, I want to accept his teaching. I want to receive what he has to give. But many of his, his disciples walked away. And so Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go? And Simon answered, very important. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That is the confession of a Christian. That is what belief looks like. And Jesus is quick to remind him that I myself not choose you. It's not because you chose God, but that he chose you. And that will come up again later in John. Be confirmed that that's the reality. And he says, and yet one of you is a devil. Do you realize that some of the disciples, that's the huge crowd that was following him that called themselves disciples, they left him. Now you have the 12 disciples And even in that group, one is a betrayer. You see how close you can get to Jesus and yet be completely outside of the kingdom of heaven. It's because you don't truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. He says, and I not choose you the 12 and yet one of you is a devil. Judas, he was talking about Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Judas, one of the 12 who had seen the miracles, he had helped bring a basket of leftovers from that amazing feast. He had seen Jesus walking on water. He had experienced amazing realities and proof that Jesus is God and still rejected him. This is because he did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. So what should we do with an amazing chapter like this, that there is a great God. And you should worship Jesus like he is that great God. Do you worship him according to the truth that is revealed in this chapter? And also that humans are greatly depraved. Do you see the evidence both in Exodus 16 and in John 6 that people in their finite minds cannot comprehend who Jesus is? They just can't get it. They can't do it on their, on their own. Now, do you realize that as an unbeliever, you're in the same category. Every single person starts out this way. You, you can't save yourself. Do you recognize and confess your own sin and inability to come to Christ? That is necessary if you will trust in him. You can't trust in yourself at all. If you don't have all of Christ, you have none of eternal life. And we saw that Jesus is the great 
provision, fully satisfying. He is the bread of life. Do you trust in him alone for your security, both in this age and in the one to come? Do you trust in him alone? And that there's a great divide between belief and unbelief, that only those who have been saved, who believe in the name of Christ, can understand the spiritual realities and have true life. Do you know which side of that divide you're on? If you're a believer, keep trusting and abiding in Christ. Keep believing. The verbs for believe in this passage and toward the end are in the present tense, implying that you need to continue to believe on him to continue to trust in him. And he will keep you. He promised to raise you up on the last day. You're not even doing that on your own. He will preserve you, but you keep believing in him. And if you are an unbeliever, God offers amazing eternal life through this satisfying provision of his son. Verse 37, what an amazing truth. It's the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Amazing provision of God for unworthy sinners. Come to him and be satisfied. In fact, let's end with Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, an amazing call and a response to what we should do to this truth. Listen to what God calls it. And you know now the one, you know Jesus of of whom this will eventually culminate with, the God who offers this. Isaiah 55 Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Delight your soul in richness. Incline your ear to me and come to me. Listen that your soul may live and I will cut an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful loving kindnesses of David. Behold, I have given him as a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation that you do not know and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of Yahweh your God, even the Holy One of Israel. For he has adorned you with beautiful glory. What should you do then? Verse six, seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to Yahweh and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. What a promise. Cast yourself on Christ Trust in his provision of himself for you for eternal life. Our Father, what amazing and abundant provision you have given us in your perfect Son, who himself is the bread of life, that we may believe in him and have eternal life. Thank you for this promise. Lord, I pray that you'd give us understanding and give us ability by your Spirit to worship you and obey you as we ought in response to this revelation of your word so that your will will be done. We look forward to the day when Christ will return and bring his own to glory. Raise all up on the last day who have believed in him. We thank you for this truth. And now, Lord, we get to sing our praises to your name in response. Amen.